Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 146, The American Martin, a reintroduction plan in Pennsylvania. This week, I'm talking with Thomas Keller of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Tom is a fur bearer biologist for the PGC, and he joins us to discuss the proposal to reintroduce the American Martin to Pennsylvania. During our talk, Tom details how wildlife has historically been lost in Pennsylvania, how certain species are selected to be reintroduced, and how a feasibility feasibility study helps determine eligible species. In regards to the American Martin, our main topic for today, Tom's going to provide details on how the reintroduction proposal will work, why the PGC feels this reintroduction will be a success, and the impact American Martins will have on other wildlife. We're going to go very in-depth talking about the diet of the American Martin, dispelling some common misinformation being spread around on social media, and how the proposal will move forward, including how you and the public can get involved and learn more. Hey, welcome back everyone. And we have on the line today, the fur bearer biologist from the Game Commission, uh, Tom Keller. Tom, how are you doing today? Good, Jason. Thanks so much for having me on today. No, I really want to thank you for reaching out because what we're going to eventually talk about today is something that I've heard a lot about and um, don't know that all the information, surprisingly, on the internet that you see in social media uh, has been completely based in fact. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, losing wildlife, reintroducing wildlife, but in specifically Martins. But before we get into this sort of reintroduction of Martins, can you just sort of generally talk about some of the factors that lead into native wildlife being lost on the landscape in Pennsylvania? Yeah, absolutely. And so when we think about Pennsylvania and, and specifically our history here, and it's important that we kind of go back in time, you know, we look at Pennsylvania um, being explored in the early to mid 1600s. And as folks kind of came up into the Susquehanna River, Delaware River, you know, what they saw was this basically inexhaustible resource of forests and wildlife and all these things. Um, but then as we saw different countries fighting over uh, settlement and establishment, and eventually um, England won out on that. And then uh, William Penn was awarded the state of Pennsylvania. And with that, what we saw was a mass um, uh, exodus from England and then coming to Pennsylvania, and it's very surprising as to um, how efficient humans are uh, when they set out to, in this case, begin to clear land. And so settlement really began in the kind of the late 1600s down with Philadelphia and the establishment um, in the southeast region. But then as you look at settlement over time, what we see is this, this movement of what we would call or what's often referred to as the Western Front. So So we had this vast wilderness 
And of course, with that wilderness, we also had indigenous peoples that lived here. And to them, that was home. But to Europeans who were not used to wilderness, that was something that had to be conquered or tamed um, and, and turned into agriculture. And so we saw uh, settlements start to reach out across the southern tier, kind of move westward toward what would what would then later be the Ohio line. And then we saw settlement go northward along the Delaware and the Susquehanna rivers and kind of start to penetrate into um, more of, of the north central wilderness area, what we call the PA wilds. And, and the settlement progressed through the mid 1700s into the late 1700s um, by about 18, 10, 1820, um, I would say probably 80, 90% of the state had been settled. And then as we got into the 1800s and we saw the industrial revolution taking off, we saw technology increase. And so instead of the small uh, clear several acres in a year to homestead, we were seeing you know hundreds if not thousands of acres cleared but that was important for a new nation. And so, you know, the United States was young. Pennsylvania was truly the keystone state in providing a lot of these resources and primarily being timber. And so um, as technology increased, we had this ability to start to uh, cut trees at a faster rate and far faster than they could regrow. And this, what we obviously now consider as a renewable resource, what wasn't renewable at the time because it was being cut so fast. And so a lot of that timber came out. And, and I would say even into the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, there was still a little left, but most of it had been cleared. And we had cleared most of the state by the early 1900s and completely cleared. And, and I think most people don't realize that if you've ever traveled up north, um, but in a in one of my previous jobs, I was a quail and pheasant biologist, and an interesting fact I learned there was that we had quail in every county within the state at one time, and so that is when that would have occurred, is when we had cleared every county within the state, turned that into agriculture, and of course made that suitable for birds like quail. The problem is, at that same time, in relation to this deforestation, we had a lot of unregulated harvest. And with those combined, we lost a large portion of our forest species. And so, you know, as early as um, the late 1800s, we saw elk disappear. And then by 1900, we had the mountain lion um, completely disappear. We had the American Martin disappear. And then by the 1920s, the beaver was gone. Um, which was surprised that it held on that long. And then we saw uh, the gray wolf and the fisher disappear uh, in the, the start of that century as well. Um, and so those, that, those are all primarily related to this deforestation. But in later years, you know, we had examples um, relating to agriculture and the changes in agriculture of species disappearing primarily because um, of pesticide use, we think of DDT and peregrines, bald eagles, ospreys. And then we also think about um, bobwhite quail, which uh, was one of the last species that we lost here probably in the late 90s. And again, primarily because of changing agricultural practices. So, so unfortunately, we have a lot of examples here in, in the state of losing wildlife 
Um, but when we, we think of especially these forest species, it's really a habitat issue, habitat disappearing, um, and, and primarily through deforestation. So we've had, you just listed those examples, right, um, that we've had species that we've lost. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also brought some of those species back, right? Like mm-hmm. the elk, for example, there's now, you know, a, a very robust elk herd um, mm-hmm. that we have hunting seasons and, and seems like tags are increasing for the most part every year, which is a good sign. That means that the mm-hmm. herds are healthy, uh, but yeah. those those obviously then aren't the same elk, right? Um, they were reintroduced uh, you know, from the Rocky Mountain Range over mm-hmm. here. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine as an agency, we don't just want people like willy nilly reintroducing or introducing wildlife on the landscape, right? So right. there's the something called a feasibility study uh, that occurs to find out what, what is the, the purpose of the feasibility study? Why are we doing that prior to any kind of reintroduction plan? Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up a good point, Jason. And unfortunately, um, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was kind of a willy-nilly reintroduction effort for a lot of different species. Um, and so, and, and there's a lot of species that have been reintroduced in Pennsylvania that never should have been and that never took. So we think of things like uh, prairie grouse or several different prairie grouse species that were brought back. Uh, California quail were brought in. Um, and I'm trying to think of some other ones. They had at one time they had brought in fallow deer and stocked fallow deer. Um, so there's all these species that at one time it was kind of throw throw things at the wall and see what sticks. But but at this point in time, because of a lot of the science we've had, um, we understand that it's important. You know, not only is this really a super valuable resource that we really can't afford to just throw things at the wall to see what sticks. We really need to go into this. Uh, with a science-based mindset and and do a full, you know, this feasibility study is really partially a risk analysis uh, as well as it is to try to determine some other things. So, so anytime you decide to bring wildlife back, the first question you need to ask is, okay, the reason that it disappeared, has that been rectified? And so in some cases, you know, if, it, if it's over harvest, we have do we now have seasons in place um is it still considered a game species with no unregulated harvest or do we have species or do we have seasons and bag limits in place um or in the case of some of these forest species do we even have habitat available and so that's a really important question is um you know the habitat that was lost did it come back did it come back in the same amount that's going to be available, which is, you know, some species require a lot of habitat. Some are very adaptable. We think of the white-tailed deer, the raccoon, species that are extremely adaptable. So habitat's not as important um, as other factors. And then we also need to consider how might bringing these species back impact other native species within the state. And that's not just wildlife, but that's also plants and a variety of other factors. So looking at um, it, you know, if it would be a predator, how would it impact prey species? If it's a prey species, how would it impact um, plant species that it might particularly target? Um, and then not just thinking about its impact on others, but others' impacts on it. And so if we bring back uh, a species that has a lot of predators or chance for mortality uh, from other species, 
is it responsible to bring that back? Do we have a chance for success um, or will it be overwhelmed? Um, and, and so what are some of the factors that would allow it to coexist with a lot of other species? And then we also look at things like climate. So, you know, something that uh, we, we're not thinking about today, we're thinking about 100 years, 300 years, 500 years down the road. If we bring the species back, yeah, it might survive now, but is it going to survive later with a, the potential of a changing climate down the road? Um, so we're trying to think long term. And then kind of as you mentioned, we need to make sure that we have good justification for this. We need to make sure we have good reasons behind a reintroduction. It's not just a gee whiz, this is kind of a neat project, let's see if it works. You know, we need to make sure that we're bringing it back for good reason. And so all of these things are things that we need to consider um, as well as the basic ecology and history within the state. And what's interesting, and, and you mentioned it there, you would assume that we would only bring native species back, but a good example of one that we, that we attempted restoration on was the pheasant. And so you know, we lost wild pheasants, never a native species, um, and then we, I had worked on that at the tail end of the pheasant restoration work that we had attempted here in Pennsylvania, which we had some success, but it was a very difficult struggle to try to bring them back. So, um, so it's interesting as to all the different restoration projects that have been out there. And as you mentioned, we have a, a you know, a strong legacy here in Pennsylvania of, of being very successful for, for most of the restoration work that we've done. You mentioned the pheasants. Um, a lot of people would argue uh, that they're naturalized, right? Like they've mm -hmm. been in North America for a long enough time that, mm -hmm. and, and because they're not an invasive species, they don't outcompete mm -hmm. other native species. It's okay mm -hmm. to have them out on the landscape. Um, sure. So I could see how that, you know, trying to reintroduce a naturalized species that's not invasive. I can understand that, but I want to go mm -hmm. back real quick. You mentioned, Part of the feasibility study is determining, like, is this a game species that has, uh, is it a game species or not? And then does it have, mm -hmm. you know, regulations built into bag limits, things like that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that quail, you know, sort of blinked out in Pennsylvania in mm -hmm. the late, in the 90s. I noticed that there's still a bag limit on quail. Um, is that sort of like a just in case we get them start to get them back in areas in Pennsylvania that's already still there and we don't have to mm. like go through the rigmarole process of like reintroducing bag limits for them? Yeah, great question. And we get that question every year and, and it is a good one. What it is, is it's more of an artifact of having the season in and then quail just very slowly blinking out over time. And then when we finally realized and did some survey work to find out, okay, we don't have quail anymore, unfortunately, by that time, it was very similar to with pheasants is we had so many people buying, ra raising, buying and stocking quail on the landscape, that they still wanted to hunt. And so for our constituents at this point, we don't have wild quail within Pennsylvania, but we still want to allow that opportunity as quail as a game species for people to buy it, to stock it, whether that's on game lands or private lands and to hunt it. Now, I will tell you, we are planning on bringing quail back here within the next year, year and a half. And so we have a, a restoration project um, down at the Letterkenny Army Depot in Chambersburg, which is actually one of the last places we had wild bob whites in the state. And so that will be our most recent restoration project for a species here in the state. And we'll be bringing wild birds back in from a variety of other states. 
and surrounding the the depot there and the private land there we're actually instituting a closed season and so there'll be a buffer zone there uh to prevent any kind of harvest of those birds because we're working with public landowners around the depot to start to allow those birds to um, expand out into habitat that we're we're trying to get on the ground with the, the private landowners. So, so it's very it's an interesting conundrum, um, but that's kind of how we're taking that on, trying not to limit opportunity for other places throughout the state that don't have wild bob whites, and then we certainly limiting some opportunity where we're trying to establish these wild bob whites and get that population back on its feet. Well, that's as a guy that has a bird dog and, mm. um, you know, has, uh, my dad has a, a brand new, well, almost brand new, uh, puppy that we just got out mm. for her first year in pheasants like that. That's music to my ears that, you know, Good. trying to bring back, um, you know, a native, uh, uplands bird species. That's, that's awesome yeah. to hear. Um, yeah. so we're reintroducing wildlife, um, after these feasibility studies, trying to do it, as you mentioned, in a way that would be most beneficial to the whole ecological system, right? There's mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff that's going into it. Um, so now the plan is to reintroduce Martins. Mm-hmm. Before we get into that whole process, can mm-hmm. you just tell everyone, tell me, what is a Martin? I, you know, I'm 36 years old. I don't know if there's anyone that's living that really knows what a, you know, has seen a, a Martin in the wild in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. What is a Martin? Yeah. Great question, Jason. And you are not alone. We, we have not had Martin for over 120 years in the state of Pennsylvania. So there's really no generations that would remember Martin. Um, and only folks that have generally hunted out West, Western States or up in Northern States uh, would, would have possibly seen one. Um, you know, while you're either hunting or hiking or whatever you might be doing out in Martin range. And so the Martin, kind of to get to some of the basic details, it's part of the weasel family. It's exactly the same size as a mink, which if you're not familiar with how big a mink is, it's about the size of a fox squirrel, a little smaller than a fox squirrel. Um, So they, they average about 24 inches long from nose, you know, tip of the nose to the end of the tail. They're about two pounds um, and a relatively small member of the weasel family. And so it's, it's generally a brownish color, um, not quite as dark as a mink, which I would classify as like a chocolate color, but a little bit of a lighter brown. They have a grayish face and they have an orangish uh, chin and bib that runs down their chest. Uh, they're generally tied to uh, healthy forest ecosystems. And so we think of the Martin, we think of this kind of an icon of healthy forests. And, and when we say healthy forests, we just mean forests that are of mixed age um, and mixed uh, composition as far as conifers and, and deciduous trees. And, and then of course, has lots of coarse woody debris, trees with cavities, um, and then an understory, a midstory and an overstory. And so, so Martin, um, Martin kind of inhabit that type of a habitat a lot of people, you know, this was at one time called the pine martin, and there is still a pine martin, but it's over in, in England. And so ours was found to be a different species, and so it was called the American martin and, and renamed, you know, somewhere between the time when we lost them and now. 
And so most folks are familiar with what we consider the pine marten. And a lot of people still think that it is primarily tied with conifers, but that's not necessarily the case and wasn't necessarily the case here in Pennsylvania. We look at historical records. Um, we see that it was, it was in this mixed, um, mixed forest habitat that we kind of currently have here within the state. So it's, it, it, I can kind of get into some of the more of the ecology as far as its diet um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, what you mentioned, I want to do that a little bit because you mm -hmm. mentioned, um, you know, trees that that are hollow or, or have mm -hmm. spots. That, is that where they're living? Like they nest in trees, basically, sort of similar to not exactly the same as a squirrel that might build a nest mm -hmm. on the edge of a, a branch, but, you know, in like nooks of trees and things like that. Is that where they're living? Yeah, they certainly do take advantage of cavities. And it's interesting when you look at research in some states, they, they utilize cavities much more than others. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of cavities because of the age of our forest overall. Um, so we would expect them to utilize a lot of those cavities, but they do. They, they will use those for denning spots um, when they have their young. They'll also use those for overnight resting areas, um, which just protects them from predation, which most most predation for marten come from birds of prey, especially the the uh, great horned owl um, or larger hawks, goshawks, um, and things like that. So, so that it's important for them to have that cover um, to rest in. But they also utilize um, dens on the ground, so they'll use rock piles. They'll go underneath stumps, holes in the ground from other species, and um, and then of course uh, it's important because that's where they find a lot of their food so speaking of food what 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 do they eat you know i mean mm -hmm. I, I think of like weasels right that you hear people talk about weasels getting into their chicken coops and things mm -hmm. like that so um my assumption is that you know a martin's going to be going after similar food sources um, not going to be necessarily you know browsing like a white-tailed deer would so what are the sort of preferred food sources for a martin yeah, and that's interesting you said browsing because what we see with Martin is not only do they have this very uh, wide breadth of diet items, but a lot of what they eat is actually vegetation matter. And so we see the highest percentage of what they eat is rodents. And so when I say when I say rodents, I mean generally voles like the red back vole. And then we see lots of shrews and lots of mice in there as well. And then even things like chipmunks. Um, but then after those small mammals, what we see is, is actually plant material as kind of that highest frequency of occurrence within the diet. And that, that includes a lot of different vegetable matter, but especially um, lots of fruits and nuts and seeds, things like that. And so, and then actually what's third on the list is insects, which a lot of people are not familiar with. Um, but, but they actually eat a lot of insects in comparison to a lot of the other things that they eat. And so then after that, then you kind of get into these smaller categories of things like squirrels, the rabbits, the hare, um, and then some of these other odd species like carrion. And then they eat things like um, reptiles, amphibians, fish. Um, so they just, when you look at their diet, it's just, it's, it's very, it's varied and it's, uh, stretches across all types of different food items but again those top three are those small mammals the rodents and then plant material and insects um, I think some of the things 
that people are really concerned about things like grouse and turkeys and hare and things like that, um, that kind of gets uh, much misconstrued. They certainly will eat grouse um, and hare. But what's interesting is when I looked at the diet and, and I actually looked at 13 different diet studies because there's a lot of information out there. Um, not once could I find where they had actually eaten any turkeys and that's eggs and poults, not just adults. So there's just no evidence out there that they eat turkeys. I would never say they wouldn't. Um, but over 13 different diet studies across their range and many of those overlap with turkeys, uh, there's no evidence out there. So so I think that's important to, to let folks know, because I think that is one of the major concerns that I hear out there. Yeah, I mean, that that is sort of the biggest thing that that I've heard on social mm -hmm. media is people are concerned about, um, you know, rough grouse populations mm -hmm. are, are <clears throat> excuse me, already having issues with, you know, the bird flu um, mm -hmm. or West Nile virus, sorry, West Nile virus mm -hmm. and with habitat issues. Um, yeah. And they're concerned that, you know, this Martin's going to eat the eggs and eat the birds. Uh, and yeah. then the other thing they're concerned with is like, okay, we're, we're restricting turkey hunting opportunities in the fall because of population concerns. Plus mm -hmm. now we have the avian, the, you know, the bird flu that could possibly have an impact um, mm -hmm. that's floating around. So now we're going to reintroduce an animal that's going to eat all the eggs. Um, mm -hmm. So you hear that. So then I, but then you mentioned, you know, the different categories of where their food's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem to be quite as big of a concern when you look at their diet studies that that you've you're referencing there yeah and and the two things that you mentioned there that i should also clarify you know they certainly will eat grouse but grouse are very low on that list of food items it's also important to remember that the martin coexists with a lot of these species that people are concerned about when you think of martin um, and martin range you're thinking about some of the best grouse habitat uh, and grouse numbers that we have left, you know, not only Canada, but obviously Maine into New York, across to Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Um, so they, they coexist with many of these uh, prey species that a lot of people are concerned about. And the other thing that I'll say is, um, as far as eggs, there, a lot of people want to pin them as an egg eater. And I could only find one diet study where a Martin had had some egg fragments um, in some of its, in, in some of its remains. And so that's important to understand that Martin are not really designed to eat eggs. So when we think of our egg or nest predators, we think of raccoons, opossums, skunks, you know, these are species that are really designed to have a really good, um, sense of smell and, and really be able to find eggs. And that's what they're primarily designed for. Whereas we think of Martin hunts primarily by sight. And that's why they're so good with rodents and picking off rodents. So yes. I think it's another misconception out there. So it sounds to me like Martins are more of an op opportunist when it Definitely. comes to eating, whereas, you know, the raccoons and, and the possums and skunks, they're actively seeking out ground nesting bird nests, right? And the eggs, um, they're not that raccoons aren't opportunistic. Anyone with a trash can is sure. knocked over knows that, but <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not like these Martins are actively hunting these sort of ground nesting birds or their nests. They're just, right. they're, they're seeing what's on the landscape and taking advantage of what's out there. If they happen to come across a nest, they're probably going to try, you know, to eat that, but they're not specifically searching it out. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they just, you know, when you look at the top aspects of, of their diet, you know, it's these small mammals, it's plants, it's insects. And again, within that diet research that we've done, we just find very little evidence that they eat eggs. Again, they probably do and they probably will. But when you look at that diet research from these 13 diet studies, it, it was found in one diet study in, in a Martin. So, um, so I just think that's important to reiterate because like you had mentioned, that's a major concern is that they're going to be looking for nests, looking for eggs. And that's just not the case. You mentioned that Martins have been, uh, gone from the Pennsylvania landscape for 120 years. Mm -hmm. Why now? Like why mm. does the game commission feel a need to reintroduce Martins now after 120 years? Why not 20 years ago? Why not mm -hmm. 20 years in the future? Why is, yeah. you know, 2023 the year to, to really start making this effort? Yeah. Good question. And so I think a lot of people feel like this has come out of the blue and, and maybe for our generation it has, but, in actuality, 20 years ago, there was a feasibility assessment conducted on Martin. The problem was at the time, we didn't really necessarily have a lot of the good technology that we do, um, particularly when we looked at habitat and whether we had enough habitat within the state, whether it was good habitat. And so that we do that by building spatial models. And um, a lot of that is through satellite imagery, um, technology, and a lot of the mapping ability that we have now. And so it's been on the back burner until we finally had kind of the bandwidth to be able to, to do that. And so that, and, and of course with Martin and Habitat, that is one of the major factors as to why they disappeared. And so we felt like we definitely had the technology at this point to build a really solid spatial model to look at Habitat, which is what we did. And we built a model, not just for Pennsylvania, we built a model that went up into the Northeast and looked at Maine, New York, uh, New Hampshire, we looked at one that went into Michigan. And the importance of that is we need to make sure that model's true. So we could build a habitat model for PA, but without being able to look at existing populations. So we know we have existing populations in the Adirondacks. We know we do have up in Maine, Vermont, and then up in Michigan. And, uh, and then we can truth that model. And so we kind of develop what we would think of as like a thunderstorm map, kind of a model where um, in our case, the darker the color green, the better the habitat, the lighter the color, the poorer the habitat. And then we could, we could uh, measure that against where we have existing populations. And what we found is we have a good model. And so that model tells us that, you know, we do have the habitat, we have a lot of it, and it's, it's, it has good connectivity. And, and so the other things that we have besides technology is we have the resources. So we have good staffing right now. Um, and we have the resources to be able to put into this project. Uh, fortunately, unlike some other projects that take a lot more resources to put into habitat um, and, and other things, this would be uh, a relatively cheap project um, to put it, you know, fairly simply. Um, but the other importance is we, we really value this idea of healthy forest. And so we know that Pennsylvania is missing a piece of that healthy forest. This kind of gets into the reasons as to why we would do this at all. But um, ecologically, we know this is really an important part. It provides a lot of important aspects such as seed dispersal and, and rodent population management. 
Um, and so anything we can do to return species back to the forest will make it even healthier. And healthy forest is important because it's not just the wildlife that is a part of this ecological community. We are a part of that community and healthy forests benefit us in many ways. And so, so it's important to kind of be good stewards of the forest. Um, and so it, it's that, and it's this, just this overall legacy. You know, we talked about all these species we lost, but we didn't talk about all the species we brought back. And, and when I say we, I don't mean the game commission, although we were a part of it. I mean, Pennsylvanians, all together working in partnership. And that's really what it took. I mean, that's the only reason our agency's around is because Pennsylvanians, primarily sportsmen at that time, said enough is enough. We're tired of losing everything. Something needs to be done. Our agency was born. And at the same time, we had a lot of other good things going on. We had forestry regeneration. We had the uh, Pennsylvania Forestry Commission, which later became DCNR. Um, starting to buy up a lot of public lands that was cut over forests. We had the U.S. Forest Service come in and establish ANF, the Allegheny National Forest. And so now in Pennsylvania, we have over you know 4.5 million acres just among those three agencies of public land. Um, but we just needed to bring species back. And we, and we did that um, as a state. We worked together and we were able to restore a lot of these species. And this is honestly probably the last species that we have the ability to bring back. Um, and so it, it, it is a good time because again, we have the resources. It makes sense at this time uh, in our history as a state. And we were bringing species back during some really hard times within the state, you know, depression era times we're bringing species back. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of benefits. And when you look at the benefits versus, um, you know, not benefits, it certainly outweighs any kind of reason not to. All right. So uh, you're, you've said that this is a great time to bring Martin back. Uh, what's the plan? How, how do we do that? Like where are, uh, where is the game commission getting Martin from? And then where are they, where are you planning on reintroducing these Martin back into the state? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And that's obviously one of the major parts of this process. And, and to back up a little bit, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the timeline and the overall process, because that's, that's really, I think, important for folks to understand. This is not a split decision um, that we're making last minute. It's, it's actually a long process to make a, a really solid decision. And so it began with, you know, a year's worth of development of this feasibility study, um, and we brought that to the Board of Commissioners, and we asked them to allow us to move forward with developing a reintroduction and management plan. And so this is a long-term plan. It's very similar to our other management plans in the state, except it talks more about the reintroduction efforts and what is needed and mentions a lot of the things like you're talking about. Um, and then once we complete that reintroduction and management plan, what we will do, and that will be completed here by July of this year, We'll be taking that to the board and, and asking the board to allow us to move that out for public review and comment, which is typical. We do that with all of our management plans because it's important to involve the public in this process. This is this is everyone's wildlife. And that's one of the wonderful things here in Pennsylvania as a commonwealth is wildlife belongs to everyone. Um, and we are just here to help manage it. You know, that's kind of our responsibility as an agency 
but we need to get that feedback from the public. And so once we get that feedback, we get those comments back, then we will tie those back into the plan, develop a final draft, and then move that back to the Board of Commissioners. That will likely be probably a year from now, probably January of next year. And at that time, we'll be asking for approval from our board to then move forward with reintroduction, accept the plan, and, and, um, and move forward. And so that even, you know, reintroduction has certainly not been settled yet as far as we're going to do it. We're just moving through this very careful, slow process, uh, which I think is the most responsible thing that we can do um, to, to move it forward. And so when we think about the plan itself, and we're still in development of that plan, like you'd mentioned, one of the two of the two of the most important things are, OK, where would we put Martin within the state? And a lot of that comes back to our habitat model, um, identifying where our best suitable habitat is within the state. A lot of that, um, if you look at the model, is primarily up in that PA Wilds area of Pennsylvania. So that north central part going up into the Allegheny National Forest and then over into the east um, in some of those ridge tops that run out um, above Scranton there. And so that's really what we're thinking about as, as our release areas. And we'll get more detailed within that plan of exact release areas as we continue to work with our partners. Um, but we're also looking at, as you mentioned, source populations. And so, you know, can and where would we get um, Martins to bring into the state? And so that's a very important question. And so I'm currently working with a variety of states and Canadian provinces uh, to get support should this be um, accepted and we move forward to know that we have good partners that are willing to provide Martin. And, and we want that uh, diversity of different partners because we know we're gonna be starting a population. And one of the most important things for starting a population is having that strong genetic diversity. So not bringing a bunch of Martin from one particular location, it, we're gonna be bringing them in from a variety of locations that gives you a much better start. And then that plan will really get into that nitty gritty of exactly how do you get a Martin from the wild and then bring it into Pennsylvania. And there's a lot more that goes into that. So how do you trap them? How do you keep them alive? How do you transport them for transporting them from Canada? What does that look like trying to get them across the border? Do you fly them? Do you drive them? Um, and then health checks. So before you bring them in a release, you know, for any species, it's responsible to, to do somewhat of a quarantine or at least some health um, examinations. And then exactly how do you release them? And so we think about release, some species release better with what we call soft release, where you hold them for a variety of time or for a, a number of days in a, a holding pen to allow them to acclimate. Or some species do really well with what we call as a hard release, where you literally get them get them down as quick as you can and, and release them into the wild as quickly as you can. And then that would be the first part of the plan. The second part of the plan is really how do we monitor these species long-term? So we don't want to just release and say, you know, hooray, we, we did it. We want to make sure that this is successful and we want to learn as much as we can from this as well. And so that, that gets into, you know, telemetry data with collaring Martin uh, looking at things like survival and reproduction, habitat usage, dispersal, um, and then also monitoring them long term. So, what does their population look like over the over time? And that's, of course, you know, we're we're talking five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, and, and really, you know, into 
the uh, into the future as long as is needed. So, so that's kind of what that plan will entail. And again, that's currently being worked on and, and uh, will be available to the public here in July. You know, you mentioned uh, the different ways of sort of releasing animals into the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, soft release, hard release. And my mind instantly goes to the reintroduction of beaver in the West uh, mm-hmm. when, when they flew them on planes uh, in a box they mm-hmm. had a parachute and they just parachute them down. And when the box hit the ground, the box opened and there, mm-hmm. there goes the beaver. Um, yeah. I, I, I feel like that probably isn't going to be the path that's taken by the, right. the game commission to release more, especially in such a forested areas. But um, right. Right. my mind instantly goes to that just completely ingenious idea yeah. to reintroduce beavers out West. Um, I'm going to assume uh, that as this plan is being developed, uh, it's not just going to be like one hyper-specific area uh, that these Martins are going to be reintroduced. They're going to be sort of um, shotgunned over the landscape into different areas that are high habitat quality, um, you know, just to sort of get that sort of base stronghold of the population so that they can naturally sort of grow and expand in that, that good quality habitat. Am I right to assume? that would be the case yeah so probably what we'll do and it'll be somewhat similar to fisher and and otter reintroductions except a little bit more in depth um we looking at the literature and the the beauty of martin reintroduction is that we have over 40 different reintroduction efforts that are very well documented so it's one of the most often reintroduced fur bear species out there across north america and so so looking at that and over years of reintroductions and most of those are very successful, we're able to see what works, what doesn't. And, and what we found in some of that literature is that for a self-sustaining population, we need at least 50 to 60 individuals. And so to start a population, that's kind of what you need to start with. You need to look again for that best suitable habitat and then release that population into that habitat. Now, you can start with less animals and, and hope for good reproduction, um, or you can start with that base, or you can start with more, assuming some mortality. And so those are all things we need to consider. But the other thing that we will likely do, um, based on some of our other reintroduction efforts, is start several populations uh, within the suitable habitat in Pennsylvania. And that's just so you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. And what we saw with Fisher is when we started these uh, populations in several different uh, locations across the northern tier, what you see is eventually those populations expand and then expand into each other and then eventually will fill out that um, suitable habitat. Now, Martin have a, a pretty large home range in comparison to their body size. So you have to consider, okay, well, how much how much uh, acreage or hectares do I need for one self-sustaining population? And then you can kind of figure out what, what your focus area would be. And so um, that's kind of how we'll likely go about it is possibly pick three or four different locations and then attempt to start uh, populations within each of those and then have those separated, but within striking distance as species or as individuals disperse, they'll be able to then start to um, breed across outside of those populations. 
that of course increases your genetic diversity, which is important as well. So again, it's not written in the plan yet, but that's likely the the direction we'll go with the plan is because that's been successful before with Martin and of course with other species as well. So what is the home range for a Martin? And can you sort of compare that to what the sort of average home range is for like a fisher Mm -hmm. uh, or a weasel, you know, in that sort of general sort of similar family? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll throw a caveat out, you know, home range is really dependent on habitat quality. And so when we think of habitat quality, the, the poorer the quality, the larger the home range, because that, that individual has to cover more ground to, to meet all its needs. The, the higher the quality uh, of habitat, the, the smaller the home range gets because it doesn't have to travel as much. So, but thinking about that, we look at averages and, the, and these are averages across the range. The Martin average uh, home range is about three and a half miles squared. And so when you think about how big that is in comparison to a very small animal, um, it's pretty surprising. But, but in the weasel family, that's not necessarily surprising. So Fisher uh, can have anywhere from 10 to 15 mile square um, or square mile range, um, again, depending on habitat suitability. And then even the weasel, even our, our smallest weasels, um, have a, a surprisingly large range, which we have three, so they vary quite a bit, but um, they're much larger than what you would expect. And so, so it, it is a fairly large home range for such a small animal. Um, and again, that gets back into that importance, why it's important in that forest system. It eats a lot of seeds, but then it travels long distances and can spread these seeds throughout the forest. And, and there's a lot of, um, of trees, shrubs that that uh, rely on that type of a seed dispersal. So, um, so that's one of the advantages. And I think that's also important for folks to understand that this is not gonna be a, a high density species. It's not like you're gonna have Martin behind every tree. Um, it, it'll be fairly low density just because of the size of their home range. That is shocking to me. Uh, mm-hmm. that, and I mean, you mentioned for the size of a Martin, that's a very large home range. Um, mm-hmm. I have from time to time on trail cameras on our property in Jefferson County, um, caught Fisher on the trail mm-hmm. camera. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't rip 10 to 15 miles. Like I did, had no clue um, mm-hmm. that it was that big. And, and, you know, I think typically in terms of like deer, you know, are one to two square miles for their home range. And right. that, that seems like a pretty large area that yeah. that's a larger animal. Uh, mm-hmm. And now you have these smaller, like, that is, that is shocking to me. I did not expect those numbers to, to be floated out there for home range size for members of the weasel family. That that's wild. Yeah, it, it is interesting. When you look at home range across different species, I mean, you think of a groundhog, groundhog's home range might be, you know, a hundred yards or less, maybe 50 yards, you know, might not travel hardly anywhere outside of its den. Um, but then, and like you said, with deer, they have a relatively small home range when you think about some of these other species that really range along, along ways. And, and that's how, and mink, mink also have a very, it's, it's this weasel family that just range at these extreme distances, um, which is interesting. And it, and it's also interesting, like Fisher, how, how home ranges work is females, females all have home ranges that do not overlap. And so you can, 
you can think of it as a group of circles that do not overlap all uh, up against each other. But then what you see is you'll have a male that might have three or four females within his home range. So his home range is probably going to be much larger uh, than a female's, which is much smaller. Um, but, but it's very interesting. And that's exactly how Fisher work and generally how mink work and weasels. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's interesting part of their ecology. Martins are, as you've mentioned, a, a fur bearer species. They're part mm -hmm. of the weasel family. We have, you know, trapping seasons for multiple fur bearers in the state. Mm -hmm. Is the long-term goal or plan to have a, a sustainable population that Martin could then be included in the trapping seasons in Pennsylvania? It's certainly a part of it. I Here's how I would answer that. Um I would like to see that because that's been really successful with our other fur bearing species like otter and, and fisher and, and others. Um, but to be honest with you, it's really fairly low on the priority of why we want to bring the species back. And I would even go as far to say that if we never have a trapping season, but we have persistent marten populations, that it's still a success. And so, you know, we look at the reasons why we want to bring them back again. We mentioned, you know, ecologically why we want to bring them back, which is very important. Um, but we also look at politically and this idea of biodiversity and how important that is in the political arena. This is one of our few chances to increase our biodiversity here within the state. Um, economically, when we look at some of these reintroductions, particularly reintroductions like the peregrine or the bald eagle, you know, these are non-game species, but they actually bring in. Um, you know, a, a lot of interest in this state through bird watching and through educational programs and things like that. Um, and then even the elk. I mean, how many people come to see elk that are not hunters or not hunting them? They just want to see or hear them. And so we have this this idea of these economic um, reasons. And then we even did some, you know, as far as the social side of things go, we did some surveys, um, which was interesting, but to see you know, what does support look like in Pennsylvania for reintroduction? And when we surveyed, we surveyed, you know, all Pennsylvanians, and then we could actually censor that by those that identified as a hunter. But, but overall, Pennsylvanians, 92% supported reintroduction. And we censored those by hunters, 92% of them did as well. Um, and, and again, this, we just have this overall legacy of bringing species back, whether they're game or not game. Um, so, so yes, it, in my opinion, it'd be great if we could bring them back to a, a harvestable level, like we have with some of these other species. But, um, I would also say if we never get there, but we are able to, to have Martin persist, that it's still a success. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the game commission is in, you know, responsible for managing all wild wild species in Pennsylvania, not just the big game or not just the game species. Um, right. While those tend to bring in the most dollars for the agency, uh, sure. through license sales and Pittman Robinson funds and things like that, um, that, you know, it's still, you know, the, the warbler, the salamanders, like mm -hmm. all that, all those species are under the purview of, of the game commission. So um, that makes sense. That might not be the ultimate goal, but um, would, I would, I would argue would be a pretty good indicator of a successful reintroduction. Sure. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of the things that that I've been seeing out there on social media, um, mm -hmm. as much as I try to avoid social media, it's you know part of daily life now in our modern society. Um, mm -hmm. There's misinformation out there. Uh, we already talked about the the thought that these martins are going to be detrimental to you know ground nesting birds, and how that's really not the case based mm -hmm. on the diet surveys. Um, here's your chance to sort of throw out some true facts uh, to mm -hmm. sort of combat some of that mis misinformation. So what are some things that people are can people are voicing concern about the reintroduction for March Martin that just really don't hold much water? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, we did talk about, you know, diet is one of the big ones. Uh, and that's what we probably hear the most about is this concern primarily for turkeys. And, and we did cover that. Um, but we also hear about their size. And I think there's you know, this concern with their size. And we also covered that, you know, we know they're about the same size as a fox squirrel. Again, we haven't seen them for 120 years. So most people just aren't familiar with them and generally jump to conclusions just like I did before I started on this project. Um, <clears throat> but some of the other things as far as maybe frequently asked questions or concerns, you know, one thing, and you mentioned it right off the bat, was this idea of, you know, are, are Martin's going to kill my chickens? And obviously with the pandemic, we've seen um, this this boom in backyard chicken raising and, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so there's a, there's two ways I generally address that. One, uh, if we would move forward with releasing um, and reintroducing Martin, it would be in some of the areas of the state where we have the least amount of human development. And so chances of a Martin actually coming in contact with a chicken would be very, very slim. Um, they're also a fairly shy animal. They don't really adapt well to human development whatsoever. Um, so th they're unlike some of these other species like the weasel, like the true weasels, um, or even mink or raccoons, things like that. The second thing that I would say as a backyard chicken grower myself is that as long as you have um, the proper protection up for your birds that would pr prevent a mink or a weasel from killing them, obviously it's going to prevent a martin. So that just gets back to that idea of responsible, you know, chicken management. Um, another question that we often get sometimes is, you know, is this going, is this reintroduction going to affect or impact um, current, um, not just management practices such as forestry, uh, but also other industry like oil and gas extraction and things like that. Um, with the concern that it would be considered a species of greatest conservation need or be a threatened or endangered species. Um, but what we do here in Pennsylvania, when we do reintroductions is we actually call them experimental populations. And so what that does is that prevents them from being listed as a T&E species or as an SGCN species. And that also prevents them from causing conflict with some of these um, industry practices like forestry, oil and gas extraction. Um, which in some cases are very important, not just to the industry, but to also to public agencies that are trying to manage their land. So, so that's a one question or concern that can come up. Yeah, um, you know, that one actually makes a lot of sense because if uh, the Game Commission that has over a million acres in state game lands mm -hmm. uh, that manages those state game lands, oftentimes by utilizing forestry practices, why would... Why would you choose to introduce a species that then would restrict you from managing 
the mm-hmm. habitat. Um, so yeah. that I, I I wasn't aware uh, that reintroduced species were sort of termed experimental um, mm-hmm. to sort of skirt those restrictions that could be put in place. That that, that is great information to know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how the elk population was. That's how the fisher otter populations were. That'll be how the bobwhite populations are. So, so that's what we've done in the past. Um, A a question that comes up, which I thought was pretty good was there was concern of like secondary impacts to some of these uh, game species. And the, the question is generally, okay, so you bring Martin back, but they start to eat a lot of the small mammals which then drives other predators to then begin eating larger prey, such as the coyote bobcat fisher, and start targeting things like turkeys. And so how I generally address that is part of this assessment was also to do a prey abundance study. And it's important not only to know is the prey available, but is there enough of it? And what we found in Pennsylvania, particularly looking at these small mammals, again, that's mice, voles, shrews, is that we have them in very high abundance. And so that concern for then driving other predators onto other, other uh, prey species is not really valid because we feel like there'll be plenty, um, basically plenty to go around or plenty to share and coexist on that resource. So that's, that's another good question that has come up. Um, and then one of the last questions that I get from trappers primarily is, if you bring Martin back, is this going to impact our ability to trap other species? And it's a good question because in some states they have done that. So uh, an example of that's Wisconsin, where they put some heavy restrictions in some of these areas where they release Martin. But the difference between us and Wisconsin is Wisconsin allows uh, body gripping traps outside of a water course. So they allow them on land and trees, wherever you want to put them. Um, and Martins are extremely susceptible to traps and particularly body grip traps. We only allow body gripping traps in a water course. Now, obviously we would still have, um, we would still have foothold traps um, available for Martins to be caught in. But if we work with the trappers and most of our trappers are very responsible, most are very selective in how they set traps for what species and you, there's a lot more selectivity in trapping than what people think. And so by working with our trappers and educating them, I think there's not going to be any need for any kind of trapping restrictions in these areas. Trappers are still going to be able to trap using, you know, the, the methods that they've been using that are legal. Um, and, and if they would catch a marten, it'd be as simple as just releasing it back into the wild. So so that's another question. Again, I, I only generally get it from trappers, but it's a good question. Yeah, that uh, hearing that question, I immediately thought that's a really good question. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a trapper myself, um, but I could understand how someone who is trapping would be concerned about that. You know, what mm-hmm. happens if I set my trap out and I get a marten? Um, but as you mentioned, with foothold traps, you're able to release that animal, you know, virtually unscathed. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, that that makes a lot of sense to not have to put a whole lot of extra restrictions on trapping in an area in any areas there. Um, yeah. Tom, what what are we missing? What what have we not covered about 
you know, the proposal and, and the idea of trying to reintroduce these Martins? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've covered it fairly well. The only thing I would say is that, you know, we definitely want um, we definitely want public input on this. And and it's important to try to educate yourself as much as possible. Um, again, this is your resource and and it's important that you educate yourself about the Martin and reintroduction um, and remember that you are part of a long line of folks that have been reintroducing species back to the wild in Pennsylvania. And, and we have that legacy as Pennsylvanians. This is one of our last opportunities to do that. Um, and so we just want to make sure that we're getting that information out to people. And so I would just encourage folks, you know, I, I will be traveling around the state here quite a bit within the next couple months and um, doing a lot of presentations. But if you are part of a club or a group, whether that's sportsman's clubs or trail clubs or um, birding clubs or whatever it might be, and would like me to come out and speak to you, I will be more than happy to do that. Um, and, and, or if you just have questions for me, you can just contact me. Um, but uh, definitely want to make that offer to, to make sure that I'm making myself available to as many folks as I can. Well, that's great, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I definitely learned a lot about Martin uh, home range size, much bigger than I yeah. even imagined. So uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, good luck with, uh, with all your talks. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, that'll do it for another episode. I want to thank Tom for coming on and talking about this reintroduction plan. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, here's the big takeaway that I hope everyone gets uh, from this episode. Uh, the big takeaway is that this is not just some fly-by-night operation. This is something literally that has been in uh, the works for, for years uh, and will take years to get done. Um, there's a lot of quality research going into whether this should happen or this should not happen. And it is the fur bearer biologist's opinion uh, that this should happen, as you heard. And I hope that you got from the episode what I got is that he is doing his due diligence. If you have any questions, do not turn to Facebook. Do not turn to the Instagram comments. Uh, please, please, please email those questions to pamartin at pa.gov. And they will get back to you. I promise you they will because they got back to me very quickly. The other thing that I would implore, implore you to do is take a look at the episode details down at the bottom. As always, I've included the the Game Commission website link, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but I've also included the reintroduction plan, the proposal, so that you can read through it and you can see where all this information is coming from. It's a lot of the same information that Tom told us in the episode, but uh, if you would rather read it, uh, educate yourself. I gotta, I, I, I have to say that, you know, any, you know, you're hearing about this weasel like animal, this animal from the weasel family. Uh, I'm all for reintroducing native species, but a weasel, uh, really back in the woods, you know, my first thought was turkey, grouse, you know, um, <laughs> pheasants, uh, you know, even 
you know, rabbits. What, you know, what are we going to do? Small game, small game, small game. Um, yes. But once you really look at the facts that while they may, yes, at times eat some eggs if they come across them, um, that's really not going to have a major impact. Plus, it's not really likely that the Game Commission is going to be putting out these these American Martins in spots uh, where there would be, you know, already some issues with some of those species. Um, they're going to be putting them in places that um, can support this species being reintroduced. So they're not going to be willy-nilly about it. So my big thing is, again, just, you know, research. Uh, true, real research, not Facebook, uh, not the Instagram comments, not uh, what you think you heard from your neighbor's cousin's brother's friend. Uh, really look at the true research that's being done by actual professionals, and I think you'll find that um, this is something that's going to be done with great care and that these animals can coexist with the same animals that we already have uh, on our landscape now because they're coexisting with those animals on the landscape in, in surrounding states. So that all being said, I'll get off my, my soapbox and, and hope that you at least get involved with the whole public commenting process. Until next episode, get outside, take someone with you, and as always, stay wild.